Welcome back to another episode of Fret Buzz the Podcast. Hi, I'm Aaron Sefcik, and every week together with my co-host Joe McMurray, we focus on how we musicians and professionals approach our craft, giving insight to help us all become more informed and better musicians. This week we're going to dive into part two with Don Ross, all about fingerstyle guitar. As always, if you enjoy Fret Buzz the Podcast, hop on over to iTunes and give us a review. And by all means, hop on over to YouTube and subscribe. We only need two more to hit 100, which would be awesome. In this episode, we get into songwriting, analog recording, uh, touring, you know, the good times and the bad times, uh, originality and what role that plays within music. Uh, Yeah, we get into a lot of cool stuff with Don. Uh, So by all means, let's jump into part two with Don Ross on Fret Buzz, the podcast. I'd love to talk to you about your songwriting approaches mm-hmm. and how that how those approaches have changed over the years. I know we've talked about your your starting with the baseline ideas and you were trying to have different tuning for Klimbim, but are there certain things that you do you sit down and say I want to write a song today or does it do you feel do you get something in your head and then you decide that you want to sit down and put this to paper to into the instrument what comes first and is it different every time is it melody first and then harmonizing that with chords well of course there's a lot of different experiences over the years but i would say to sort of be nutshellish about it um what i've done what's happened most of the time in the past is that i'll i'll get a musical idea that starts swimming around in my head very often i'm nowhere near a guitar at the time you know because i i kind of probably a lot of musicians experience this but i i kind of almost always have music going on in my head like it's almost always there you know i get a riff or a a a thing or just a song i heard in the radio five years ago that i can't have been able to shake it out of my head whatever it is so there's almost always uh i'm like uh, that that peter griffin and and that family guy thing where he wants his own theme music it's kind of like i have my own theme music going on i'm writing on the bus writing on the bus anyway uh (laughs) that's a very funny scene anyway um so um what i find is that very often i get these ideas when i'm nowhere near the instrument so i think okay you know make a strong mental note of that put that in the memory bank and try to remember it when you got a guitar in your hand next kind of thing and then um very often i find that the idea I have kind of works, but kind of doesn't. And usually the the kind of doesn't part is that the range of the of the melody or whatever is not really achievable in standard tuning or in another tuning that I use. So that's when I start altering my tuning very often to make something achievable on the instrument. And that's why now I use a crazy number of tunings. I, I have a tuning database on my on one page on my website and it's uh, it's hilarious you know people are often saying hey you know i i wrote my whole last album based on a bunch of tunings i saw on your website and that's great i think it's awesome but um so i have a lot of homemade tunings for that reason to to solve compositional problems um i also tend to think like i think like a songwriter when i write so when you think about song form like a really well-written song almost all the really memorable songs you've ever heard use a combination of verses choruses and maybe a bridge now the classic pop song is that it's those three elements you know so you have a a strong verse and then you have a really catchy chorus and then you go to some new place maybe two-thirds of the way through the song so the the beatles for example used to refer to that as the middle eight because that's an old songwriting term because usually bridges were about eight bars long uh you know so not always but usually so the the beatles always referred to it as the middle eight even if it was 16 bars or 12 bars or 11 bars long or whatever it was um so that those elements uh if so if you think like a songwriter well how does a song go usually goes verse number one verse number two chorus verse number three chorus bridge new place to go for a little while comes back to the chorus and maybe there's another verse and then maybe a double chorus at the end there's your song so that was very liberating to me to sort of uh, study song form in school and then realize that I had been using it unconsciously. And then I thought, okay, well, that's great. That sort of confirms my idea that really all you need is three strong elements, three strong ideas uh, in your piece to make it uh, memorable. 
And so that's what I tell my students all the time who are interested in composition, um, that that kind of um, modular way of thinking when you're writing uh, and repetition the right number of times uh, following a certain formula that that can it's malleable, of course, but um, based on a instead on of an ABC kind of <clears throat> uh, design, then you end up with uh, really memorable pieces of music. The, the problem I found, like when I started out writing a lot of music, especially in the 80s, um, was that that was kind of during the the new age scare, you know, and uh, there's a lot of a <laughs> lot of really, really unmemorable music being written for like solo piano, solo guitar. Some of it was great, but some of it was kind of like just a lot of notes. And it was just very often the, the pieces just kind of started and then just kept going and going and going. And what I realized what was missing was thematic development. And and theme in music is really mostly about repetition. You know, music needs repetition in order for us to, you know, unless you're doing something very experimental. Um, you know, like John Cage didn't rely on repetition and neither did Karlheinz Stockhausen. But, you know, Steve Reich certainly does. And, uh, you know, uh, Philip Glass certainly does. Um, but repetition of that kind of form element that's that's what makes it work like a song so yeah so that, that for me is that's how it tends to work and then in terms of what where i'm going to go you know in terms of brass tacks musically you know very often it's based on a on a on a groove idea it might be something that swings a little bit you know so for example especially since the 90s i've been writing a lot of tunes with kind of a hip-hop double time swing element like a 16th note swing that kind of rhythm so if you think of michael 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 or mm -hmm. afraid to dance or dracula and friends and any of those really funky ones um they 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 all use that that rhythm uh which of course i grew up with as well stevie wonder used it all the time and uh so um and that to me made my music stick out a bit because it wasn't just boom, chicky, boom, chicky, boom, chicky, boom, chicky, like a lot of fingerstyle guitar has tended to be. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that's very helpful. I, your songwriting approach is definitely something that we've had, we've had some past guests um, say that, but you put it nicely into words there. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah. Is there a song that you've written where you were, is that do you have a favorite song that you've written or is there anything that you wrote where you were just like as soon as you wrote it you had this like bursting excitement because you knew you were you had written something well i certainly went through good. i went i went through this spasm of writing uh in the late 90s that uh to this day some of those tunes really stand out uh, as among my favorite of my own tunes mm -hmm. and certainly the tunes that i wrote on uh, like the, for especially for this one album called Passion Session, mm -hmm. which I re-released. Basically, I, I re-recorded the whole album as PS15 a few years ago, um, mostly because the record label that I recorded that album for went out of business uh, thanks to the internet. And uh, so, um, so a lot of a lot of people love those tunes, but they didn't really have any easy way to certainly no way to get them on disc, you know. So, uh, so it shows it was nice to have that album again and put it out on vinyl and the whole thing. Um, but tunes like Klim Bim are on that album and Michael, Michael, Michael and Blue Bear, uh, Blue Bear, So Little Blue Time, uh, No Goodbyes. Um, it's, you know, those are all tunes that are still really special to me. And I, I, every time I play them, I go, wow, you know, I, I'm really proud of this tune. So, um, and that's nice. And I, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a danger, I suppose that I, or somebody else, might say, oh, my best years are behind me. But no, that's just not true. I, I still write new tunes that I like just as much. But there was just this, I don't know what it was. It was something in the air that, that year um, that just really made me want to write a lot of music. Plus, it was my first record for Narada, which uh, was a US label. Like Before that, I'd been only on Canadian labels with only Canadian distribution, and it was pre-internet. So uh, even though I had more of an international thing going on i didn't really have international releases so it was a big deal for me that um passion session was going to get released in virtually every market you could think of you know it came out in poland and japan and mexico and the states and canada and everywhere so it's kind of like oh awesome well i'm gonna just write all these killer tunes you know and uh it's kind of fun every once in a while you see things like um 
acoustic guitar magazine or whatever will list you know the top 16 records made between whatever and then my, that album's usually there in their list of top whatever records and I, I i feel really happy about that 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 body of work you know ended up all on one record and i kind of think wow yeah it's like this little gem you know absolutely i love that one thank you and i love the variations that you your reimagining of those tunes in ps15 is you know it's they're obviously the same tunes but you can tell you've played them thousands of times and you've messed with the rhythms and added extra little flair and nuance yeah you bet and a big element of what i do anyway is improvisatory so <clears throat> um i probably think more like a jazz writer than uh a lot of people would necessarily in this sort of world that i you know whatever box i'm in so uh since a lot of the tunes have elements of improvisation in them um that's how the tunes get morphed and then very often even the ps15 versions uh the 15th anniversary album that i put out um even that very often was just what happened in front of the mics that one day you know uh the tunes can take a on a different life on a different day in your studio time have have things evolved a lot recently Who do, where do you record and um do you use the same Beneteau guitars to record? And then are there any things you remember from the recording sessions that might be helpful to those of us who are trying to record with our microphones at home? Yeah. Well, that's what I do. I've been doing that since, um, well, I have the advantage of, uh, I did a, I did a music degree. Just to check this out uh, yeah. for a second. Yeah. We never got your full, <laughs> your full backstory. So. Yeah. Um, I did a music degree at York University in Toronto. Uh, I graduated back in the 80s. And so it's a bachelor's degree. I never went and got my master's or doctorate. I sort of got talked out of them by my former profs. They just said, Don, you should be working. Get out there and work. You know. So I, I, I decided back then I wasn't going to be an academic, um, which I kind of regret now that I'm in my 50s. It would be kind of nice to say, well, I could just get, be a professor somewhere. But anyway, um, I've sort of done part-time professorships at universities over the years, which has been a blast because I love being in academia. I really enjoy it. I love being around all these eager young minds too. It's awesome. Anyway, uh, so I did a music degree and uh, one of the courses I took was a two-year course in electronic music. And at the time, of course, um, digital technology was still very nascent. So we had some digital effects. We had digital delay and we had digital reverb and that kind of thing. Um, but we didn't really have any digital recording devices because nothing was really any good yet. I mean, digital was 8-bit at the time. It didn't sound good. So I learned how to engineer on tape. And I was using an 8-channel uh, reel-to-reel tape recorder uh, through uh, a Soundcraft board and the whole thing. and. Um, and I learned all things, you know, how to choose microphones, how to attenuate properly, how to EQ, how to saturate tape, how to compress, this kind of thing. And and it really came in super handy because um, I eventually got signed to record deals. And um, my first deal was with a, a small independent label out of Toronto that had distribution through MCA, which is universal now. Um, and it was cool because we recorded at the label's own studio and they had this wild reel-to-reel -reel digital setup so it was a setup that didn't last long there were sort of two competing formats sony had a format and mitsubishi had a format and so this uh, studio used the mitsubishi and it, what it was it was one inch tape reel-to-reel -reel going 30 ips just like analog tape except it was basically it was videotape and on the one inch, you could fit 32 channels. So we were, I was recording you know, solo guitar music on a 32-channel machine, which was kind of ridiculous. But anyway, we set up a lot of mics. And we ended up just using you know, not very many of them um, just because we had all these channels. And uh, then we, we, we mixed to a Mitsubishi two-channel tape machine. And I used quarter-inch videotape. So it looked just like a traditional tape recorder, except it was all digital. And of course you could record, I guess at the time it was like 16 bit 44K, so C CD quality um, on tape. It was, so it was kind of a wild thing that didn't last long. Yeah. And then, uh, so I, I could use my analog experience to understand how that technology worked. And then 
eventually I started making records on 24 inch analog tape again uh, for a few records. And then finally computers got so good and the internet happened and my record label went out of business. So then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to make my own records now. Uh, I'll get geared up. So I, at the time I bought my brand new Macintosh G4 computer <laughs> tower and a, you know, pro tools version, you know, negative five, whatever it was at the time. Yep, yep. And, uh, got myself set up and uh, and I started telling my friends, hey, I'll make your, I'll engineer your record for free um, if you don't mind being my studio guinea pig. So I did, I think two or three records for friends. Um, first I was using the, the free version of Pro Tools because they used to give away a version on a CD and it, you could record uh, onto your computer using the sound in on your Mac. Yep. Um, you could record one channel at a time, but you could also mix in stereo. You could run outboard effects and stuff. And I did all that. I did, I did, uh, soundtracks for TV shows and radio shows and stuff with the free version of pro tools. <laughs> then, then I bought myself the G4 and got a full version of pro tools. And, um, then I got signed to Narada and, uh, I did my first record for them in Germany, the passion session record that was done on a hard drive recorder, uh, not a computer, but, a you know, uh, basically a, a dedicated hard drive recorder in Germany. And then uh, I did a record called Huron Street, which was recorded on, uh, the again, this is just when computers were just not quite doing it yet. So they had, there were these dedicated digital machines. Uh, this was called a Gen X, I think it was called. And it was, you could record 24-bit um, and probably up to 96K or something, really high resolution onto a hard drive. And because at that time, everybody was panicking. Napster had happened and Narada, my label was saying, well, we have no idea what people are going to buy next week even. So what we're going to do is we're going to record things super high res and kind of hope something like DVD audio takes off eventually with the marketplace or, or super audio CD or something. Um, so we're going to record as high res as possible. And, uh, then, you know, then the record label just said, we can't do this anymore. And they, they folded. And I, I started recording more and more stuff. And then finally, um, oh, yeah, right. My third album I did for, for Narada was the first one I did at home. It was an album called Robot Monster. And I was really happy with how it sounded. Even now, I throw it on. I, think, I, I knew what I was doing by then. So that's 16 years ago. So now, you know, I have a very simple setup here. I have a, a, a good interface made by Focusrite. It's called the Claret 4 Pre. Um, yeah, there you go. A fellow yep. Claret user. Yeah. Um, I use Pro Tools still. I have the subscription now, uh, and uh, and I have a late model Mac laptop that I record on, and I have a nice mic collection which I haven't added to in years. But I, I've got like a great big Rode uh, um, uh, condenser microphone that I use as kind of my main uh, studio microphone. It's good for vocals. It's good for. Um, instruments anything i have these 414s that i use stereo pair on sometimes uh, for recording guitars or if i'm recording drums or whatever yeah. and you know i can i i did an album i recorded a, a record for my wife when she was signed to sony usa back in the 2000s and uh um i have a i still have an eight channel um you know a to d converter preamp thing that i can record drums with you know one one instrument per channel kind of thing so I can go up to 18 channels into my into my interface at once. So it's it's fantastic. You can do amazing multi-track recording if you want. So my, my most recent record, I did a bunch of different things. I played all the instruments on the album. There's some solo guitar tunes. There's some harp guitar tunes. There's some vocal tunes. But I also played piano. I played um, electric guitar. I played uh, my fretless bass. Um, and I also uh, used some drum loops which I'd never really done before, but there's a company called uh, Looploft, and they they do uh, they bring in people like Omar Hakim and Celso Alberti and uh, Nick Smith and all these incredible players to, to come in and, and just groove away in the in the studio, and then they send you little stems uh, by download that you can buy from them, and they're copyright free. And so on my last record, I had Omar Hakim playing on one tune, uh, you know, Sting's old <laughs> old drummer. And I had uh, Celso Alberti, this amazing um, uh, Brazilian percussionist, playing another tune. But you know, they were somewhere else earlier than, and I was in Halifax. <laughs> Is that though louder than usual? 
album? No, this is the um, uh, A Million Brazilian Civilians. Oh, okay. Yeah. Louder Than Usual is live off the floor with four jazz musicians, basically. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. well, that's... Which, I, which I'm really happy with. I, I love that album. Uh, I, I, thought, I thought that we were going to get all kinds of summer bookings this year. It didn't work out, but next summer. <laughs> Sorry, I really, it's, some of it's really jazzy. I really like it. A lot of Latin mm-hmm. tunes that I like. Well, that's the thing. Like I've written like hundreds of tunes and some of them were definitely written with uh, collaboration in mind uh, with a, you know, a small sort of like chamber jazz kind of ensemble in mind. And I I got to record a few of them that way, like when I was signed to Sony or whatever, when there was a budget. And then this time I just uh, thought, well, I'll take a little bit of uh, time and money. I'll just throw my friends together that I've been playing with off and on for years uh, but never in that particular combination. And we all went into a studio in Toronto and just recorded these tunes of mine that were kicking around, waiting for a really amazing group of musicians to play on them. And those are literally live off the live off the floor, usually first takes uh, of those tunes. And I was, you know, we thought, well, let's let's tape a rehearsal, <laughs> but it ended up being an album. You know, I like it when that happens. That's awesome. Yeah. Very, very organic and you get that that feel that you're you're kind of looking for it's nice yeah and when the players are so good that you just like you're all in the same room just sort of looking at each other you know you, all you have to do is raise your eyebrows or <laughs> lift your headstock or whatever and everybody just does what you know intuitively you know oh there's that spot that we're all going to do something on boink there it is oh amazing you know yeah so yeah i love that i i really enjoy it I want to go back. I need to pick your brain a little bit more about this recording <laughs> um, aspect. And I know Aaron loves this. Oh, yeah. But I know. I so I, yeah. Yeah. You obviously have, have a lot of experience with this, which is great. We um, I recently recorded um, a couple fingerstyle tunes that I wrote and I've been experimenting with multiple mics. I don't have a whole lot of equipment, but I have this one condenser mic and I've got I tried putting an SM57 in, or an 58 in a different spot, but do you typically, when you're recording an acoustic guitar, about how far do you want to put your mic off the guitar? Do you want it over the sound hole? Do you want it more kind of over where the, the uh, fingerboard meets the sound hole? Or you just try a whole bunch of different things and mix them together to find out to find the sound that you want? Do you have any well, go-to Bear with me. I'm just going to grab something that's right behind me here on a shelf. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've been trying to trying to figure this out. One of my secret weapons. Um, I use this mic a lot. <clears throat> now I told you about the, the the large condenser microphone that I often use for kind of everything, and Did I you do use the Rode mic. Yeah, the, yeah, the Rode. It's called a K two. Is it a K two? I think it's a K2 or an NTK. I can't remember which one it is, but uh, they make two mics that are very similar. Um, but one of them has a changeable um, pattern on it, and the other one doesn't. Anyway, I've got the one with the changeable pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also make this crazy thing. And uh, what it is, it's it's called an NT4. Uh-huh. And it's a stereo microphone. So you can see how it's two mics there, two two in one, kind of like certs. And uh, it's uh, it's got a left channel and a right channel, and there it's it's in an XY pattern built in, so it's kind of a no brainer stereo microphone. Like you don't have to even know anything about uh, you know mic setup or whatever. And this thing sounds incredible. Um, I think they retail for like six hundred dollars, so it's basically two mics for six hundred bucks, and um, it takes this weird looking cable because it's because it's two channels, so. Um, the part that goes into the mic has like, I don't know how many pins that is. That's six or something. Uh, one, two, three, five. It's got a five pin connector, but it looks like an XLR. And, you know, so you shove it in there. And then on the other end of the cable, there's two regular XLR left, right. Okay. So okay. Um, that into your, like, and I also use a really nice A to D converter um, mic preamp called the, uh, it's it's made by Grace, and it's a company that makes preamps. And uh, this is an older one; they don't make anymore, but it still works great. So I keep using it. It's called the Lunatech V3. Um, I'm sure you can get a used one for like a thousand bucks. They were two thousand new, and I got mine in two thousand three. Um, and uh, so that way you can bypass uh, your built-in preamps if you want. Um, 
using the SPDIF connection. It's a digital RCA connection. And so my 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 interface allows me to bypass the, the, the built-in preamps if I want to. The preamps and the Claret are really good. So they, they sound great too. So um, I have a choice of preamps that I can use. But man, this thing left, right, through my Grace preamp sounds incredible. And I recorded most of the solo tunes off my last record, my last solo album that with this. And then uh, then what I do for something like the harp guitar is I have this in front of the, the regular guitar and I have uh, a D112, which is a, a microphone that AKG makes. And it's um, um, made really for either upright basses or kick drums. And uh, so it's a real good bottom end mic. So I use that on the bottom end strings on the on the harp guitar, and it just sounds like a million dollars, you know. And that, and I, I also use the, the transducers. I run the transducers from the guitars. Um, the can through, system. Yeah, through through a channel or two on my on my uh, rig, and then that way I have the choice to use them to boost certain frequencies if I want, or to drive effects. So uh, when I record a solo guitar tune, typically. I've got this about six inches away from the guitar, kind of not right at the sound hole, sort of a little behind it, like between the sound hole and the, the bridge. Uh, okay. uh, so, that, so it doesn't get too boomy. And um, so that, and then the, the transducer coming out, sometimes I go transducer and onboard microphone on separate channels, you know, from the K&K, but sometimes I just use the transducer. And um, then I usually use the transducer like I would use a magnetic on stage where I roll off all the high end. And I just use it to juice up the, the bottom end. So like on PS15, for example, if you listen to a tune like um, Michael, 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 uh, that tune I recorded slightly differently. I had my big road condenser in the middle and I had a pair of these 414s off to the side, X wide, so that I had a stereo pair and a center channel. And so it's a different way of recording. And you have to mix really carefully so you don't get phase issues. Right. And then, um, and then I also use the the transducer. And if you listen to low C on that thing, like through through a set of headphones or through through a good pair of speakers, it just it's like how the hell do you get that much bottom end of an acoustic guitar? It sounds incredible. And it really does sound great. Like Clem Bim sounds like that as well. The, all the, the low tuned pieces on that record, the the bottom end is crazy. And uh, so that's an, a little secret as well. Use your transducer, but don't use it as your main signal. Just use it as a way of um, colorizing or complementing your microphone sounds. I'm, a, you know, I'm a big fan of just using mics on an acoustic guitar. That's the, the best sound. Uh, you know, and they don't have to be super expensive. This is not a super expensive microphone. Um, my regular Rode big giant condenser was about a thousand dollars. You know, and these four fourteens are about a thousand dollars each, so you don't have to clear out your bank account. Uh, I, I invested slowly over years, and I'm really happy with my mic collection, which, like I say, I haven't really changed in a long time. That is exactly what I needed there. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> cool. Extremely helpful. And update. I don't know if you heard that that little ping a few minutes ago, but that was the my luthier Larry Burwald telling me that my K and K system just <laughs> arrived at the shop. So I can drop off my guitar whenever I want. Yeah, but dab. Oh, you're you're gonna be so happy. Yeah, I'm really excited about what you're just saying about using the transducers to get the bottom end. Oh yeah, I, I've had a hard time because I had this last song. I just I just used this one mic and I I duplicated the tracks and I've separated them into like just bass frequencies, just low mids, just high mids, just highs, and I've been trying to get the bass to sound good, and I'm like. So part of me doesn't know if it's the guitar. I mean, I realize that's why they make those fan fret guitars, so you can get a better bass sound. Yeah, you get more uh, tension on the bottom strings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah, uh, you know, like try it like this. Really, a lot of it is trial and error, and also really trusting your ears. I mean, um, <clears throat> there, there's been a bit of a problem with digital technology because everything is on a screen and everything is numerical and everything's everybody's always looking at <laughs> that, you know, at gauges and all that kind of stuff. And they, they don't just trust their intuition enough. Um, and ultimately what you want really want to do, like, of course I understand how all that stuff works and I'm careful about it. But in the end, when I listen to a, a take or a mix or whatever, I usually turn my screen off and I just, I pretend it's a tape machine that I'm not looking at. And I just, 
sit between the speakers and listen to it and say, what does it sound like? Use your ears. I, I had this really great experience, maybe one of the happiest days of my life. <laughs> when I was recording, my wife's name is Brooke Miller, and she she had a very active music career for a bunch of years, but she just she's younger and and she came along after Napster and it was just so hard to get going. Even though she she got signed to Sony out of Manhattan and everything else, you know, we all had stars in our eyes. Um, but uh, we made this really cool record, mostly at home with my gear. And uh, at the time we lived in this big old Victorian house north of Toronto. So we had, you know, we were recording in different rooms and stuff like that. And we recorded the band in a decommissioned church, you know, in all these different rooms. It was just, it was an amazing experience. Um, but finally, uh, Sony said, well, do you want to mix the record? And I said, you know what? If there's a budget, I think somebody else should mix it. I think it's just a fresh set of, set of ears. So I've been working on this record for two years and, you know, I've kind of over listened to it. And then they said, great, sure. So we ended up working with Frank Filippetti, who, if you don't know who that is, like he's won Grammy awards for like engineering James Taylor records and Sting wow. records and all this kind of stuff. So I heard we we're going to work with Frank Filippetti right in Times Square, New York. And I, I was starting to, you know, lose my, you know what? And I thought, oh, well, I don't know what's going to happen here. I, I hope I did a good job. You know, I just got really insecure feeling. So I was thrilled, but at the same time, I thought, you know. So sure enough, we show up. Frank's lovely, but, you know, he's busy. So we're sitting in, my wife and I are sitting in the back of the studio in the couch, you know, from day to day for a couple of days. And he's just there with a stogie and making all these changes and here and there, going through the tunes a couple of seconds at a time. And, uh, you know, it got to be pretty tedious. So on the second day, we went out for a, a nice long walk. We came back and uh, Frank was still there, you know, listening to a few seconds at a time. And uh, and we took our perch back in the back of the room again. And the, the guy who co-produced the record at A&R, Brooke, to get her, her Sony deal, he's sitting with us. And he's like our super experienced guy in the in the biz, you know. So at one point, Frank, winner of all these Grammys, turns around with this big stogie sticking out of his mouth. He says, where was this recorded? And I couldn't tell by the way he said it, what he meant. And I just said, I said, uh, oh, I, I rec we recorded it at our place. And he says, what were you using for equipment? I thought, oh, no. <laughs> I said, uh, Pro Tools going through an iBook. You know, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't even a high-end laptop. It was just a cheap, one of the cheaper Macs. And he goes, you recorded this at home on an iBook? And I thought, here we go, here we go. And he says, this is like the best sounding thing I've worked on in years. <laughs> I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He says, just shows you, Don, just shows you. Good mics, good ears. That's all you need, right? And he turned right back to what he was doing. And I just, I was, I, I, I felt like, like I was going to explode with joy. I couldn't believe. And I, you know, and Peter was like looking at me like, and, and and Brooks grabbing my arm and you're Frank Philip Thirty thinks you're really good, so that that to me was the the best vindication ever. I just thought, okay, if if this dude says my recording is good, then I got it down. And that was like twenty two thousand six. You know, that's awesome. Yeah, but but it's true what he says. Like the the mics just have to be good. They don't have to be expensive, and you have to trust your ears. It's mm -hmm. so important. Like people are afraid to trust their ears. If something, if the, one of the best ways to trust your ears is to A, B things, right? If, if you're, there's a record that you, that you love, that you just think, oh my God, that record sounds so good, whatever kind of music it is. Uh, and then you can set it up so that you can A, B back and forth between it and what you're working on. And you, and you say, okay, my record doesn't sound anywhere as good as that one. You know, what can I do? You know, is it br making more brilliance in the top end? Is it beefing up the bottom end? Is it making it breathe a bit better? Is it, is it an EQ issue? You know, you, you can eventually figure it out just by A-being and, and emulating the quality of a recording that you like. Not necessarily trying to make it sound the same, but you're just trying to emulate the quality, the, the high quality that you're hearing and saying, I know I have the technology to do that. It's just a matter of fi figuring out a way and then trusting these things that stick out the side of your head. Yeah, with yeah. all my students, I know that, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right so many people especially now in today's world are, are kind of attached to the screen you know everybody's got like a spectral analyzer and they've got all these graphs and they can see exactly oh the and even a being you know they'll see like okay 
this song has bass in this region and these frequencies and they'll come and start matching and with all my students and they kind of look at me a little bit weird sometimes but with all my recording students what i'll do is i'll kind of take a piece of paper or a cloth and i'll throw it over top of the monitor and they'll just kind of look at me like what are you doing <laughs> i'm like it's mixing you need to use your ears ear that, holes yeah that, <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's the way it's been done for decades and decades and decades. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's a reason for it. You know, you have to trust yeah. what's coming out of your monitors uh, and the environment, the room that you're in and how you're hearing it. And then go from there. You betcha. You got it. But that's, that's so much of it is uh, people just not trusting them, their, their guts and their ears. Yeah. Mm. yeah it's, it's too bad. I, I think, I think it's also, you know, it's, it's part of the, part of what's endemic, even on the didactic side of things, the, the pedagogical side of things, you know, when I, when I do a transcription of one of my pieces, I know that 99% of the people who buy a copy of one of my tabs never look at the, the standard notation, which is just a shame. Yeah. I mean, I'm a terrible sight reader. Most guitarists are. The guitar is a really difficult instrument to sight read for. So I understand you're not going to use the, the the standard notation necessarily to learn every note of the song but the standard notation tells you the rhythms you know <laughs> very if you've, if it's been notated a problem it'll, it properly it'll tell you whether to use your thumb or your for your fingers to to finger a note in your right hand etc cetera, etc cetera. there's all kinds of reasons to and even if you just want to say well if you're a good sight singer you know and if you look at it and say well how does it go oh it goes la 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 you can trace it you know the melody line yeah. even if you've never heard it before yeah. but um but people are just so visually oriented especially now it's gotten even worse it was always bad um but now with tablature it's like uh uh you know even when i'm teaching somebody face to face i very often can't say to them uh well it's like the g on the high e string they won't necessarily know what i mean i have to say well fret number three <laughs> it's too bad we wish you also knew it was a g yeah, yeah. anyway yeah anyway yeah <laughs> yeah i'd like to jump over I, I love all the recording studio stuff but uh sure. in an effort to fit everything in mm -hmm. um i'd like to know what your like most memorable show has been in your career or you could have a couple different ones but and why was it especially cool. memorable well, it's a great, great, uh, it's a great question. I, you know, certainly I've played so many shows and certainly I've had a lot of fun at a lot of them. Uh, some of them have been a terrible drag. It's, you know, it's par for the course. I guess you should, yeah, you should also tell us your, your <laughs> least favorite show, your sure, biggest sure. bomb. I'll tell you, okay, I'll tell you the, the crappy ones first because uh, it's always nice to end on a good, uh, good note. Um, I, I remember one time, this is back before, uh, smoking started to get sort of disallowed pretty much everywhere in the Western world. Um, so, you know, the first many years I was touring, if I played a club, it, you've got used to just smelling like smoke when you left. And of course I haven't smoked cigarettes since I was 17 or something. So I mean, I went through a short, uh, I'm so cool with a cigarette stick sticking out of my mouth phase, like a lot of us did. But, um, you know, so I, I had no interest in smoking or cigarettes. I just can't stand it. But I had to put up with it for a long time when at the beginning of my career uh, in the club environment. And uh, <laughs> so we I think we'd already kind of outlawed smoking in Canada and most public places. But in a lot of Europe, it was still OK. They eventually saw the light, too. But um, Brooke and I had this gig in Schweinfurt in Germany. <laughs> um, it was organized by this really well-meaning fellow, but he, I get, don't think he knew the venue very well. Anyway, um, I think about seven people showed up <laughs> and they all smoked like chimneys and there was no ventilation, no nothing. And um, so Brooke and I were depressed as hell to be halfway around the world playing to seven people in Schweinfurt, <laughs> which literally <laughs> means pig ford. But anyway, because um, that was the place on the river centuries ago where they would bring the pigs across because it was shallow anyway that's where the name of the town came from okay. um uh so here we were playing in pig ford uh, to seven people and getting our lungs blown out with everybody else's smoke and so at the end of that we kind of looked at each other and said why are we not plumbers or accountants or something you know <laughs> and um uh i did another gig with her again in um in japan 
uh, on a Tuesday night. Uh, our booking agent thought it would be good not to have any nights off, which, you know, sometimes a night off on the road is not unwelcome, you know, especially if the option is to play for 15 people in a very small town in the faraway mountains of Japan where, in you know, people have never heard music that sounds like yours. They've had very little contact with the West. <laughs> it's just a, it was a weird experience. Wow. And, and another one where we both looked at each other saying, why are we doing this? But those have been few and far between, fortunately. Um, I would say my most memorable uh, experiences, uh, way back when I first started, I got to play with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. Oh. Um, and a bunch of my tunes got orchestrated by professional orchestrators. And... Uh, I was all of 25 years old or something. And uh, at the end of it, I I just thought that, you know, life doesn't get any better than this. That was very exciting to have a 70-piece backup band. That was crazy. Um, and since then, I've gotten to play with orchestras several times. And every time, it's it's uh, it's insane. It's crazy. Played with a few Canadian orchestras and a bunch of, one, bunch of orchestras in Germany, and it's gone really well. Um, Another time, uh, you have July 4th in the States. Well, July 1st here in Canada is our sort of equivalent holiday. It's the national holiday. And uh, there was one year back in the 90s where I got asked to play at the midday performance. There's sort of two big performances on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, the nation's capital, uh, that day. So there's a, a noontime show which features... Um, you know, speakers in a military band and then a bunch of uh, usually pop singers and stuff like that singing, whatever. And uh, so I got to play at that one one year to 60,000 people. It was oh, wow. bananas just looking out at the sea of heads, you know. And um, so that was cool. And I think maybe um, kind of the, again, I liked it for the combination of the setting and the, and the sonics. Um, I played at a guitar festival in Italy in a town called San Benedetto Po, which is near Bologna. And uh, uh, I was told that the setting was really special, but then I got there and it was a, it was a, an ancient monastery and that hadn't been used as a monastery in a long time, but um, all the buildings were still there and there was a quadrangle in among all the buildings that was all grass and that's where the, the uh, outdoor show was going to be. And and they set up this big beautiful stage, and it was the show was going to be free to the public, and they were expecting you know between five hundred and a thousand people, and and so I was pretty thrilled to begin with. And then a lot of shows in Italy have like the best sound equipment you've ever heard. There's a, a couple of companies over there that are renowned for uh, live sound equipment. So sure enough, uh, the guy who's running the the, the desk, he says. Uh, so, Don, we can do your sound check now. Okay, great. So I get up there, and I had a really nice rig, and it was all stereo and beautiful-sounding effects and, you know, nice reverbs and nice choruses and stuff. And I'm checking everything that I have. And then he gets on the, the talkback mic on the monitors, he, and I'm in this gorgeous setting. You know, the place is empty. And he says, um, Don, he says, this sounds very good. Um, would you like to hear your sound check? And I said, well, how would I do that? And he says, I have made a digital recording of your sound check. I went, awesome. So, so I, I went out into the middle of the field in amongst these, you know, thousand year old buildings through this incredible PA system that sounded like the best stereo you've ever heard. And I'm listening to myself, you know, right. the, the, the stuff I played four minutes before coming and that I didn't even know was being recorded. And I, I was just thought, this is incredible. And then that night, the place was packed and you know people were holding candles and all it was just amazing wow and i thought okay i can die happy right now i can die happy right now so those those are nice experiences those are the kinds of things where you just think okay this is why i do this yeah. and uh i'll go to the grave remembering this you know that's amazing. wonderful yeah do you uh do you have any advice for up-and-coming guitarists and interested in you know, the acoustic guitar, finger style, or any style of music, anything that you see people consistently doing wrong or that you think they should, you know, just some piece of advice that would help them along the way. Well, th there are a few things that I guess I, I always feel a little bit sad about maybe, um, but I understand it's a lot of it is the the age we live in. We're, we're in this kind of... Um, 
since the advent of the digital economy and the internet and stuff like that, I think that there has been a little less because people are afraid to take chances because it's so difficult to make money now as a musician. It's just, that's just the, the truth. I mean, I used to make a much better living in the nineties. Uh, I'll be very frank, you know, um, cause I had record advances. I had, I was signed to Sony. I was doing, you know, I had, um, a really nice company behind me, nice people, even, even though people love to hate record companies, all the people I worked at with at record companies were amazing people and they believed in my music and I was really flattered and <laughs> it was great. Um, so, uh, back then it was kind of like, yeah, I mean, I, I could support a family of five and, uh, my wife, you know, my late wife didn't work and, and, uh, we had kids at home and stuff and it was awesome. You know, it was really in a lot of ways I think back to it and think, well, I were lucky, but in the digital economy, it's been very, very difficult. We, you know, it's just so much, um, uh, pressure to give everything away for free and to do this for free and do that for free and it's all about exposure so you can give more things away for free and it's just blah, drives me nuts so i know that there's been kind of a shortcut attitude that a lot of people are taking especially now that they have access to essentially broadcasting what they do to an audience right away and for very cheap um i i get a little sad at the kind of the the infatuation with just coming up with another damn cover song you know it's like it, to me it's like um it's really sad that that originality and creativity seem to be more than ever um losing the battle um now it's like oh, i'm gonna put another cover of another u2 song up or i'm gonna do another cover of another guns and roses song or something you know some god-awful piece of junk and you just had to have to go well okay i guess it's a quick way to appeal to a large number of people who grew up listening to that song i get it i get it but it's to me it's like it's a bit of a tragedy you know and i that's why i i really value players like pithari sariola out of finland you know he awesome. there's there's somebody who's doing something that's truly unique it sounds like him uh, yeah, he's done a few cover tunes in the past and stuff like that, but his most recent record, uh, re resolution, uh, and I've told them this to his face, you know, it was, it was by far and away my favorite record of 2017. It's one of my favorite albums I've ever heard. And, uh, the combination of the creativity, the original writing, the grooves, the incredible guitar playing and the, the, the sonics on that record. Oh my God. I can't believe the sounds he gets. Uh, such beautiful, rich bottom end and uh, very tasteful use of effects and everything still sounds like an acoustic guitar. And uh, I think he's a killer singer too. Yeah. So, um, you know, he to me is, uh, is an example of somebody that makes me feel more hopeful, right? Because uh, he's, he's really killing it. Um, and uh, so I would tell people to look at people like, like him uh, as and, and a few others as really good examples of how you can um, you can play your own game you know you can write your own music you can forge your own individuality as an as, as a musician and uh, that to me is more valuable than somebody just playing the hits you know and I, I won't mention any more names <laughs> because I don't want to slag people but there's a lot of people who have gotten quite popular just playing the hits and I again I get it because it, it's an easy way to make a living. Um, but there's a side of me that just goes, man, you know, give me something new. Mm. I, 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 you know, like Stevie Wonder already did that song way better than you'll ever play it, you know? Or why are you covering Beatles songs? That's like paraphrasing the Bible. Are you nuts? You know, but that's just me, I guess. I, 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 I like individuality. It's happening every, like you said, it's happening everywhere. Uh, across the music field and across honestly hollywood as well i mean look at all of the movies that are being remade and it's it's such a dis disappointment that so many people are looking to the past and to recreate the past which i get it i i, I understand the nostalgia you know? and like you said people have grown up with that and it's very accessible because it's you know we we all know those tunes but um there is something to originality that like you said it, it's fresh it's and i think 
a lot of that is needed right now where people aren't afraid to put themselves out there and try new things i think that, amen brother that's yeah, really what's the that's the stuff that's you know <laughs> that's what i'm I with want. you there well i'll tell you a funny little story which i've told very few people but um my my first wife died quite young um and her grandparents were still alive when i was uh getting going so this is like my wife who's older she was older than me and her grandparents are still alive so it's kind of they were really old yeah. and um i was staying with them in the town in the midwestern canada they were living in and uh her grandfather was this, you know, typical kind of prairie kind of, kind of guy. He was a real left-wing prairie kind of guy, but uh, you know, he was a ardent socialist workers, you know, union kind of guy. Uh, but he was really old at this point; he was like almost ninety years old. And and so I'm, uh, he he's sitting there with me, and he says, "Ah," says, "I got a question for you." I said, "Sure, shoot, Gramps." And he says, uh, "Just wondering, uh, do you know that guy Segovia?" <laughs> and I said, I said, oh, you mean Andre Segovia? He goes, yeah, whatever, whatever. That guy. I said, you know him. I said, not personally. He's been dead for a while, but um, I know who you mean. Yes, great, great guitarist. And he says, yeah. He says, do you do any of his stuff? And I said, well, Gramps Segovia wasn't really a composer. Uh, he was an arranger, so he arranged like a lot of Scarlatti and Bach and all that kind of stuff for the solo guitar which was you know at the time was completely nobody had ever done it before it was an amazing thing and he was saying okay okay well anyway this guy segovia and he says do you do any of his stuff i said i do a few bach transcriptions yes for fun i don't do them on stage and he says okay you can play that stuff though i said yes gramps i can he says well then why don't you <laughs> and i i said well i said I, i'm a composer so i i the, the shtick that I have is that you go to my shows, you're going to hear my tunes, you know, people come to, and then he was saying, uh, he was saying, yeah, but, uh, couldn't you make a lot more money just giving the people what they want? <laughs> and I thought, okay, man, this is really cool. Here's a 90 year old man saying the same thing that people who are in their twenties say, you know, like you could just, I could take an easier way out if I want, you know? Mm -hmm. And then finally my wife's grandmother just chips in. She says, oh, he's got to do his own thing. Just leave him alone. He's got to do his own thing. Yeah. And he was saying, yeah, but you know, I probably make more on pension than he does now. And I said, I said, but you know, I said, Gramps, I don't think I was put on the world just to make money. You know, I said, just like you, you know, you, you fought for whatever, you know, uh, rights and, and, uh, things that you had as a worker and stuff like that, but you didn't want to be a banker. You know, you didn't want to be a lawyer. You wanted to weld. He was a welder. I said, so you, you got to do what you wanted. And, uh, and he was like, well, yeah, well, okay. But it's interesting. Um, you know, there's always that pressure to, I mean, my dad has done it too. He's saying, why don't you write, uh, why don't you write to Celine Dion and say that you'll, you know, put some music to some words. I'm just like, ah. I could do that if I wanted to, you know, yeah. but it's like, you gotta want it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, hard, it's, 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 it's always hard to get people to understand that there, there's a, even though it's hard, there's a, a huge amount of reward that comes from just um, sort of eking out your own stuff. I mean, this is this is the other thing too. People say, well, you know, uh, playing a Beatles cover is a good idea because everybody knows those tunes. And I just think to myself, yeah, but I mean, aside from the very beginning of their career, the Beatles weren't playing covers. You know, you don't pick up Rubber Soul to hear a cover of, you know, Johnny Be Good. You pick it up to hear all the cool songs that are on revolver or what you know or rubber soul um you know the white album is not an album of covers uh, so they had to create their own music they, and that's how they took their greatest reward you know uh, by being creative yeah yeah other than that the for, for for a guitarist getting going these days i always tell people look make as many videos as you possibly can i mean i don't make anywhere near as many as i should but make as many videos as you possibly can it's the only way to get any exposure Put them on Facebook, put them on Instagram, put them on Twitter, put them on uh, YouTube, everywhere you can possibly spread yourself. And, you know, it would be nice if it was original music and cool stuff that you're doing that's 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 unusual. And then build up a name for yourself that way. That's kind of the way to do it now. You're not going to get it on the radio. There's no MTV anymore. Um, so just uh, build your own fan base because you can. You can do everything yourself now. Yeah. And um, And then that can lead to gigs, which can lead to making a living.
Um, back when I started, it was more a matter of getting that recording deal and hoping the recording deal led to gigs, you know, which let you make a living. Uh, now it's kind of backwards. Now it's like you gotta you gotta promote yourself without a recording necessarily, and just get out there and hustle and play a lot of gigs, play as many gigs as you can. I did a whole lot of crappy gigs to start my career just to get my name out there, and it worked out okay. You know, I'm I'm a pretty busy guy now, and I get to play in dozens of countries, which is great. When you were starting out, were you playing original music, or were you playing a mixture of original and cover music back then? When I was a teenager, just doing it, uh, you know, as a very, very, very part-time thing when I was uh, going to school, I didn't really have a whole lot of music that I'd written. Um, so I would do, I would sneak a few uh, original instrumental tunes in the midst of, you know, covering a Jonathan Edwards tune or a James Taylor song or whatever people wanted to hear in order to, and I mean, I start. I grew up in Montreal, so it was a pretty cool place to grow up because, uh, I looked three or four years older than I was. So, and Montreal was always pretty loosey goosey about liquor laws. So I could go play at licensed establishments when I was 15 and nobody ever asked me. I, I looked the part, I, drinking age was 18, you, you know, so I looked 18 so I could get away with it. And um, the more I did it, the more I started sneaking more and more of my, you know, I had more um, incentive to keep writing new music uh, because now I actually had gigs. So I would sneak more and more of my own original material in there. But then when I finally made the decision to go full time, which wasn't until I was in my mid twenties, um, I decided to just do it with 100% original music. I just figured I'll let the, the audience find me. You know, I, I, I'm not going to go looking for an audience that's already built in. I'll, I'll, I know it'll take some time. Uh, it'll be an investment of time and effort and blood, sweat, and tears, but I'll, I'll do it, you know? And uh, so it was much more on my own terms. And again, like I say, that has its own rewards, you know, mm. for sure. Well, I should say it paid off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a rich guy, but I'm having a, a heck of a fun life. I really am. Yeah. Love, <laughs> as long as you love what you do, that's that's honestly you bet all that matters. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, Aaron, do you have any final questions? Uh, I did have uh, uh, one small question. I did read that that you do a guitar camp. Yeah, it's like a, a weekend of just come to my house and we'll uh, nerd out on about music and guitars for. Yeah, and I'm I'm doing one this year for the first time in a few years. I I used to do it every year, sometimes twice a year when I lived in Ontario, and. You know, it's kind of very, it was a very central location. It was easy for people to get to the Toronto airport from anywhere in North America or people were coming from Europe and Hawaii and everything else to, to get to, to go. Um, then when I moved here to the East Coast, um, and of course Canada's East Coast is a lot further east than the American East Coast. So I'm an hour ahead of your, your time, even though you're on the easternmost time zone in the States. Um, so uh, I tried it here on Prince Edward Island, which is a very beautiful island province not far from where i live and um people did come but it was it was a it was much it was a much harder job to do that right and it was very expensive because i you know took over a hotel and bought every you know all this food and everything and i you know, didn't make a whole lot of money at it but it was still fun to do so this year i i decided to re revive it my wife and i moved to this uh, property that's directly on the ocean and um the house that's directly next to us is uh, just as big as the one we're in a fairly large house these days. Um, it's it's uh, just as big as this one, and it's rented out most of the time to holiday makers, and uh, the, the people who own it show up every once in a while. But uh, I worked it out with them that I could rent it for the, the time that I uh, wanted to do my guitar uh, weekend. So I'm doing it on Canadian Thanksgiving weekend, which is in the middle of October, so uh, October 11th through 14th. And uh, I had all the spots sold, but I just had a cancellation. So if this airs soon, yes, um, uh, I do have one spot available. So uh, you can check it. It's a uh, donrossguitarweekend.com. I think it's. I think that's the URL. Anyway, and uh, it's nice. People just stay at my house, or they'll stay next door, like ten feet away. And um, we're right on the ocean, and there's hiking trails, and there's. Uh, you know, in October, it might be a little cool to swim, but it's very beautiful looking around here. The, the fall colors are amazing. I'm right near Peggy's Cove, which is a very um, historic lighthouse uh, on the end of the peninsula here. Uh, real tourist mecca there. That's 10 minutes away. And um, 
and it's nice basically it's it's a it's a pedagogical weekend i usually do it with a co-host this this year i decided as an experiment i just tried doing it my, myself and only having six people so mm -hmm. it's very exclusive <laughs> and what is what is your focus throughout the weekend it's um working on a fingerstyle technique composition technique uh, learning my tunes because people very often want to learn them up close and we do them as a group and also uh, I offer a lot of one-on-one um, -on -one instruction because you know, there's a, several hours in the day set aside for just uh, half-hour lessons or whatever and people can uh, over the course of the weekend they get two half-hour lessons and one-on-one uh, -on -one, and we can talk about whatever they want to talk about oh, man. but uh, yeah it's awesome and yeah. there's you know it's going to be nicely catered and um, it's a really fun event. I used to love doing them when I lived in Ontario and uh, the one in PEI was fun too. And you're thinking about, re so are you possibly planning on doing twice a year? Is that something that you are considering maybe after this October, maybe doing another one in the spring or something like that? Yeah, I'm definitely thinking very strongly twice a year, especially if I keep doing them on my own, um, mm -hmm. then it's just like even just the cost of having a co-host is very high so uh i can only really accommodate a small number of people so uh the idea of keeping it just uh me and a bunch of guests suits me just fine right now in the future i might go back to the the larger uh format with a co-host but i'd have to have a venue for that which i i, I live remotely enough that that's a bit of a hassle but right. anyway you know i mean but where i am is only half an hour from the little over half an hour from the halifax airport so Awesome. Well, we'll yeah. definitely uh, keep an eye out for that. Yeah, for sure. If you do open up another session, we'll kind of broadcast that to all our listeners because that honestly, that just sounds like a great time. And and even in a small group, I know with me and past whatever it is, the, the idea of six people and you know you were there with a mentor is oh man, I don't know that it gets much better than that. Yeah, and you're <laughs> and you're even staying in that mentor's house, you know. <laughs> that, 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 you know, when I, when I used to have it in. In Ontario, um, like I say, we, we had this big rambling Victorian house, and uh, um, most of the people stayed at my place, but also the overflow would go to the neighbors' houses and stuff like that. And uh, um, that was what people took away most. You know, I, like I got to hang out in this house with a bunch of like-minded people. Isn't that nice? You know, it was it was a it's a really nice experience. I like it a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I got to stay home. <laughs> which is like the biggest benefit <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah 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 mm -hmm. uh, I, I, one off side question that I was that I was kind of thinking about are you from oh, my first experience with real experience because I was into James Taylor and Eric Clapton and when he came out with this acoustic album and whatnot like that. But it wasn't in really until 1996 or 97 when I went to see Joe Satriani uh, on the G3 tour up in Boston that they had this guy, this finger picker come in and his name was Adrian Legg. Adrian Legg, yeah, of course. Uh, just amazing. Uh, it just blew me away. Just, mm -hmm. Yeah, talk about unique. It was yeah, a, was a unique guy for you. Yeah, just mm -hmm. just his approach was just whew, out of left field, and I'm thinking to myself, "Holy cow!" You know, you got all these like electric guitar people in the audience, and here's this. At the time, he was sixty some years old, and the place was just silent. You know, thousands of people, and there's a sixty year old man up on stage, and everybody's <laughs> just like like zoned in on him. it was great it was wonderful i'll never forget it. it was a wonderful experience oh yeah i'll tell you speaking of wonderful wonderful experiences when i lived in toronto there was this place that opened up unfortunately it didn't last long it was there for a couple of years it was called the guitar bar there really was such a place and um it was upstairs at this well-known jazz place called top of the senator so there was there was a senator restaurant on the main floor on the ground floor and then the first floor above that was the top of the senator that was the jazz club and then above that was the guitar bar so i, I used to jokingly refer to it as the top of the top of the senator anyway um when they first opened they brought in all these really heavyweight players like alex degrassi herb ellis larry Coriel. um oh man the list went on uh, joe pass was still alive he came in um and adrian leg played and i played and uh anyway i can't remember who else but um people were saying you gotta go see adrian leg so 
sure enough, I went to the guitar bar and most people didn't know anything about him. So they, he maybe had 40 people there. And uh, yeah, I was just like, holy moly, that was wild. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, really innovative with all the retuning and you know crazy stuff that he does in the middles, middles of phrases and tunes and stuff. So um, yeah, we're still Facebook buddies. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah, I've never heard him. I'm gonna have to have to look yeah, him up after this. L E double G. Yeah, Adrian yeah. Leg. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Don, it has been wonderful getting to speak with you. Thank Thanks. you so much. Yeah. Well, great to get to know you guys and uh more power to you with this and uh, good luck with everything. Yeah. yeah, we're just trying to bring you know, real real deep discussions about music to people so that people can can learn about it and fuel their own passions um you know and maybe while they're driving around there instead of wasting their time listening to something else they rush limbaugh yeah (laughs) they get something positive out of their time exactly yeah good Um, good. we really appreciate your time so have a wonderful weekend Yeah, you too. Have a great rest of your day, and uh, and thanks to you guys. Yeah, Yeah, thank you, Don. We really do appreciate it. All the best. Bye. Bye.